So everyone, welcome to, wait, nope, going to start that over. So I'm trying to do this thing where I don't say everyone <laughs> or you guys. Like I'm, I'm trying to, I try to talk to a single podcast listener when I podcast. Yeah. It's hard though, especially when you're in a community with people. <laughs> welcome to episode 65 of the podcast, dude. My name is Aaron Dowd and today I've got a special guest with me, Mr. Dan Powell. Hey Aaron, thanks doing? for having me. Yeah, man. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. I uh, had an early start to the day. And, yes, uh, you know, just just powering through, you know, the grind. So, uh. man, we were we were chatting a little bit before the show about our our sleep and our exercise habits, and I, and I feel like we would be good friends if we were living in the same area. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so, so you're so you're one half of Dead Signals production. Your your other half, uh, Mr. Mark Solinger, was on last week, and the previous episode, you guys create the popular Archive eighty one and, and Deep Vault like found sound radio drama style podcasts and which are really, really great. So I wanted to have you on the show uh, to talk about your, your recording process, maybe your, your sound design, how you do the editing and hopefully get you to share some of the, the hurdles and problems that you overcame while you're producing your, your podcast and maybe some advice to give, uh, to give people who are starting out doing this kind of stuff, a little bit of hope uh, amongst all the, the overwhelmingness of starting a podcast, especially like a, a narrative style podcast or a radio drama style podcast, because I know, I know how much work that stuff is. Yeah. Like I have it, I have it easy compared to, to what you're doing with, with this show. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because I do think in some ways uh documentary radio can be easier than like dramatic audio drama podcasting. But I also think like one of the challenges you have and that like nonfiction documentary radio as in general, is that you are trying to assemble the narrative based on raw material from the real world. Whereas mm. with an audio drama podcast, you can kind of like write the story and like you know what the story arc is going to be in advance. So it uh. saves you the trouble of having to comb through transcripts and like extract like patterns that will come together into a story in the final product. Um, so in a sense, it's it's a little easier in that sense. It saves you a little trouble. Um, but there is, there are many other logistical and technical factors that come into play with audio drama that, you know, can make it more challenging. So, man, good, good point. And and that's some great insight that I hadn't really thought about before. I think for me, for me, it feels easier to do something like this and and interview people and talk to people and and write nonfiction stuff. Fiction has always been, it's kind of been a mysterious beast to me. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to to hearing how you think about it and, and all that stuff. But first, we got to play my intro music because that's the thing I do. Uh, so we'll take a short short break for that, and then we'll come back and get straight into it. I, I want to hear I want to hear your background. I want to hear like how you got into all this and where you came from and and why podcasts. Yeah, totally. Okay, so episode 65 of the podcast, dude. Welcome. If this is your first time, my name is Aaron Dowd. I'm 31 years old and I live near Fort Worth, Texas. And my goal with this podcast is to help other people make podcasts, help you make a great podcast. So talking to Dan Powell today, Dan, we talked about this before. You're doing good. We already established that. So tell me, tell me a, bit, a little bit about yourself, maybe, maybe where you're from, where you are now. Uh, and what your path to audio and, and podcasting is, has looked like over the course of your life. Sure. Um, I was born in Rome, Georgia, and I grew up in Georgia until I was about 18. Uh, sort of a you know medium, small-sized town. Uh, lived in the middle of the woods. Spent nice. a lot of time by myself, just alone with my thoughts, which is probably what caused me to gravitate towards you know sci-fi and horror and speculative fiction. Mm. Um, I actually began making radio dramas at the age of... Uh, like eight or nine. What? Um, yeah, I was uh, like Windows ninety five sound recorder. If anyone remembers, the family <laughs> yeah. computer had that, and I would I would spend a lot of time as a little kid just making these like one one man shows. Basically, uh, uh, sometimes it would be me, sometimes it would be my friends and I, and we just get in front of the microphone, and see what would happen, and that's really what introduced me to audio editing, creative sound design. Uh, I was interested from an early age with what would happen if you slowed down or sped up or changed the pitch of your voice. Mm. Um, and <laughs> so, yeah, it started then. Um, I went to Syracuse University for college. I majored in English. Uh, I loved reading. I still really do. 
Yeah. But I realized I was spending all my free time in the studios, uh, just recording my friends' bands, recording myself, and that working with audio might be a good career path because as I'd always been interested in creative writing, uh, mm-hmm. but I thought hmm, maybe it'd be good to like develop another like more technical skill or trade that I could have on the side um, while I'm doing writing sort of stuff. Uh, and then I just ended up really enjoying working with audio. Uh, I decided to sort of make that my primary creative and uh, career pursuit. Um, so after school, uh, I moved to New York City. I interned. I did some odd jobs. I worked at an Apple store. Um, I eventually, my first job in the audio industry was at SoundSnap. It's a commercial sound effects library that some of your listeners may be familiar with. Uh, we SoundSnap. have a lot of radio and podcasters. Um, mm-hmm. Did that full time for about two years and then eventually transitioned to sort of working there part-time while making more time for freelance work, uh, doing more studio engineering, more sound design, and of course working on my own podcast on the side. And, and that's where I'm at now. Wow, that's, that's a lot of things. And so you, we, I, I asked Mark this question last week. You guys actually met in college. Yeah, Mark and I met um, his senior year and my post-senior year. I stayed after I graduated to do a postgraduate fellowship in audio engineering and sound design. Uh, mm. One of the really cool things about Syracuse is they have this program where if you get to the end of your four years and decide you want to do something different than what you studied, uh, you can apply for a fellowship that will let you stay an extra year and basically give you a free year of credits to kind of do whatever you want. Um, so I did that after I you know, finished studying English. I stayed an extra year just to build up my portfolio and get some more one-on-one mentoring strictly with audio stuff. And that's when Mark oh. and I met. Awesome. Awesome. And then you guys formed Dead Signals Productions. Is that right? Yeah, we formed Dead Signals uh, this time last year about. Um, It was Mark came and visited me in New York and we were just hanging out and talking about ideas we had. Um, The projects we worked on in college was uh, it was Mark's senior sort of thesis project, a radio play that he wrote and produced. Um, And then that I was just sort of acting in it, you know, as playing the lead. But um, more recently starting last year is when we started actually collaborating and, you know, both giving sort of equal input to the project. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's when you came out with deep vault. Uh, archive 81 was first and then deep. Vault okay. Just right. Came out this year. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So archive 81 and default and, and two great shows. So I'm trying to think at this point, I, I want to talk to you about the, the recording, a little bit about the recording process and the tools you use to, because uh, you do, you handle the editing. I think you guys for Deep Vault, you uh, okay. Let me back up. Archive eighty one, you recorded in a bedroom, correct? Yep, it was almost entirely in our friend's bedroom. <laughs> which uh, do you remember which mic you were using for that? Yeah, I'm using. We use two mics, and uh, it's one of the ones I'm on right now. It's a Sennheiser MKH eighty forty. I got this mic because it's a really good all-purpose sound design mark mic. Not Mark, mm. Mike. Uh, <laughs> it's good for like all-purpose sort of Foley recording, stuff like footsteps, cloth, um, fabric movements, uh, you know, any any sort of like everyday object you'd want to record, it's a good choice. It's also really good for ambient field recording. Um, and we recorded the dialogue with this mic and another mic called a Sennheiser MKH-30, which is a bi-directional stereo mic. And, um, and the two of these things together form a really good... Uh, pair for mid-side stereo recording, um, yeah. which is, you know, what I was really interested in when I bought these mics. One, it was, you know, it was the best deal I found on eBay, but two, I was interested <laughs> in in doing more sort of like ambient uh, field recording because living in New York City, there's so many interesting sounds everywhere. There's so like many that. neighborhoods. You've got the subways, you've got the parks. Um, you can turn a street corner and be an entirely different sonic landscape than you were just in. So I wanted something that was good for capturing my environment. But uh, when it came down to produce Archive 81, you know, we realized after we did some tests in our friend's bedroom that uh, these mics would work well, just as well for dialogue recording. Um, So, yeah, like personally, I would have liked to have used maybe like a wider diaphragm, uh, like Neumann or AKG microphone. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Archive 81, but I still think the mics we used worked. It was, you know, it's good gear, um, and it was yeah, what we had yeah. available at the time. Yeah, definitely. I I, I know a lot of podcasters who use um, like $60, $70 USB mics, 
And so, so there's a there's a big difference in quality between those and these and the the MKH. What do they run used? Like close to a thousand dollars? Um, close to a thousand dollars. The Micamon right now goes for about twelve hundred new. But I, you know, I'm a big eBay and Craigslist deal hunter. Yeah, um, same and here. When I was first getting into audio, one of the best pieces of advice I got that has really stuck with me. I was mm. talking to someone about five years my senior. Uh, who's very sort of successful and established in the music uh, production scene here in New York. Mm-hmm. And he said, buy everything used, don't buy any equipment new. Like you can, the best stuff, um, like the really good gear, it'll, even if you buy it used, it'll last you forever because it's really good. And he told me, I've made a spreadsheet of every every piece of equipment I've purchased um, wow. from when I was starting out to present. And collectively I've saved about like 30 grand uh, and that, that really stuck with me. So I, whenever I buy gear, I usually only buy it used. Um, so this mic that I'm talking on now, I got it for about half of what it would cost new. Um, that's, yeah, that's, that is definitely fantastic advice. Um, it's pretty much same here. I mean, I don't have a spreadsheet, but $30,000, man. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. The, the mic that I, the mic that I've switched to. So I started with a, with an SM7B dynamic mic and I'm currently on a sure beta 87A. But yeah. this the eighty seven A costs I think two fifty new. I think I paid one hundred and ten dollars for it after tax. Got it used from Guitar Center, and it's a fantastic sounding mic for, oh, yeah. for podcasting. Yeah, it definitely and, is. Uh, I, I like the richness of it. Um, in general, I really like dynamic mics for podcasting work. Yeah, and, you know, I like the rich low end, the proximity effect you can get, and um, and it's tr- like I. You know, I use the mics I use because I, I want to have a lot of applications for things like sound design and field recording, but I don't mm-hmm. I don't want to make it seem as if you need to buy like a thousand or seven hundred dollar microphone. You know, I've I've heard people get fantastic results with just, you know, a you know, an SM an SM fifty eight, which I use for, you know, when I do event recording gigs. Yep. Uh, you know, you can get one used for fifty, fifty bucks on Craigslist, and those those will sound fantastic in most cases. Um and in many cases, you know. They're probably more ideal um, if you are at home and don't have access to a treated acoustic space because dynamic microphones will, you know, they do a better job of isolating the sound source and not picking up your refrigerator or your roommate or your upstairs mm-hmm. neighbors yelling at one another. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely, I agree. I, I love the large diaphragm condensers, but they, they, you do need a quiet, treated room to make them sound good and not pick up a bunch of sound. So, that, so um, so into the weeds there. Let's let me play a clip that that I really like. I played this last week, but I'm going to play it again because I have I'll have two questions out of it. Um, this is this is towards the end of your. It's not the most recent one. I don't know. I think it's episode one. It's not episode zero because episode zero was the intro of Deep Vault. So that towards the end of episode one of Deep Vault, uh, there's some dialogue with some reverb on. And I, I, I want to ask you about that. But then also the music that I believe you wrote, the, the section particularly where the footsteps transition into the beat of the song. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So let me let me play this for the listeners just so they can hear what I'm talking about. And then we'll we'll discuss it. I mean, I assumed it would be deep down if it was supposed to survive the end of the world. Wait, you all have no idea what's down there. No. Nah. Stories from when we were kids, some sort of bunker. When everything turned upside down, we decided to come back here. And they brought me along because I'm their friend and because I had a car. How'd you hear about it? Internet forums. Internet forums? Yeah. Some of the forums mention it. Lots of legends about it. Among some of the more conspiratorial members, a place of safety and danger. I was on those types of sites to promote my post-radical collectivist scene. But when everything happened, I thought some conspiracies might be right. Came here, met Carl on the way, who turned out to be even crazier offline than on, and now here I am. Alright, let's head down. Uh, We can talk on the way. Anyone scared of heights? Nope. I'll be fine. I will attempt to manage. Come on, I'll take the duffel. We don't know how long we'll be down here. Alright guys, I'm going to count each step, just so we can get a sense of how deep this is. One. Don't. Two. This is going to get aggravating. Three. This is important. It's also literally more annoying than the last time I tried to quit smoking. (laughs) 
still really, really like that. <laughs> Thanks. And so I'll fade it out from here. So let's talk about let's talk about the the reverb and the ambient sound on that first, because I, as I'm listening to it, and I don't know if if the people listening live right now can hear the ambience of that, but it sounds there's some kind of and I don't I don't know if this is reverb in the space that you recorded in or reverb that you added afterwards, uh, and then also almost like a like an air conditioning kind of swoosh like background ambience yeah so can you um, describe how you how you achieve those effects yeah so i'll address the matter of the reverb first um none of that is natural it's all added in post mm-hmm. um i exclusively use uh impulse response reverbs uh which is uh if, if you're your listeners are familiar with it um what impulse response reverbs is are is basically you can capture a sonic snapshot of a real indoor space by going in, uh, blasting a sine wave or white noise in it, and then recording the echo that comes afterwards, and then notching out the original sine wave in post. So you have this kind of like ghost, like like emanation snapshot of like what a space actual sounds like. And then what convolution reverb plugins do is they take one of these snapshots, they take the signal from your dialogue or whatever you're trying to put reverb on, and they sort of combine the two together and saturate them uh, mm. t- to create a very, you know, kind of naturalistic effect. So what's happening there is there's a there's sort of two reverbs fading out and into one another. There's the outdoor reverb, which is very, which I have a very very you know light touch on, um, which is just the sound of you know kind of meant to evoke the sen- the sense of space being outdoors, and mm-hmm. the sort of echoey you know underground reverb of the vault they're about to go into. Mm. Um, and you can hear, you know, if you listen from going from prior to them entering the vault to that, you can sort of hear the, how it evolves from one space to another. Um, yeah. I think very visually about uh, this when I'm working on it. And uh, I've said this a lot in various interviews, but for me, because I'm working with Mark on the scripts from the beginning, um, I don't really think of this as post-production. I, I'm, always, I'm thinking about space and like sonics from when I'm reading the first drafts and I usually will visually like map out or make a flow chart of what the spaces look like and how things need to transition from one stage to another because it just helps me uh, sort of focus better. Uh, so that's the reverb in the background. Awesome. We have uh, the sort of background of the desert, the ambience of the outdoor space, which is a field recording of um, sort of a desert that's near an urban area. Um, so you have some, you know, wind and just outdoor air atmosphere, what's called an air tone. It's kind of like the outdoor equivalent of a room tone. Yeah, um, yeah. And then that's a you good also term have for some, it. Oh. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to come up with a term for it, and that's way better. Yeah. Air tone. Yeah, if you search uh, SoundSnap, the uh, sound effects library that I've worked for, um, for air tone, you'll find a bunch of sort of ambient recordings of outdoor air spaces that don't really have any crowds or people or traffic, but more of kind of just a general wash uh, like you hear in that clip. Um, so th- there's the air tone, um, and then you have sort of the vault sounds, the ambience of the space they're going into, which I believe I'd have to go back and look and see exactly what I used. Um, what I think it is is uh, some field recordings by a, a field recordist I really like named Stefan March, and uh, I think it's some recordings of abandoned bomb shelters on the Danish coast, uh, these sort of like industrial sort of room tones where you can have, you hear some distant waves, but they, they have kind of an underground and lo-fi industrial, uh, kind of roominess to them. So yeah. those two things are blending together to create the atmosphere of going into the vault. Yeah. And, and it really well done. And I would have had, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm I'm embarrassed to say it now, but I was thinking that these were effects that you could achieve with something like Pro Tools or Logic, just the the reverbs that come included with them. Um, can, can we go into that for a second before we talk about the music? What what program do you use to, to yeah. do all this stuff? Um, so I use Pro Tools for editing and mixing mm-hmm. and um, basic sound effects placement for things for um, what's referred to as composite sound effects design, like designing Mm -hmm. a sound effect that needs a lot more depth to it than what I can just pull from a library as is. I use Mm -hmm. Logic. Um, And and that's sort of for two reasons. One is that 
I think it's good to have a separation between sound effect editing and like show editing. I yeah, like to yeah. be in two separate mindsets when I'm creating the sound of a robot or a door um, and when I'm editing the show and having a different software environment helps to streamline that. The other reason is um, while I do think Pro Tools is great, I think it's very flawed for making things creatively from scratch. I would never write a song or demo a song in Pro Tools uh, yeah, because I don't yeah. think uh, the user experience is really tailored towards composition, whether that's composing a song, whether it's composing a sound effect from scratch. It's great for editing and like taking material that's already done, uh, so to speak, aesthetically. Like if you've recorded a guitar through an amp and you need to edit it, it's good for that. But if you're trying to dial in the tone of a guitar, for me personally, I just I prefer to use Logic or Ableton, something that's a little more, you know, built specifically for making music from from scratch. Um, for this scene, I used pretty much all Pro Tools because I wasn't designing anything beyond simply layering things together and adding the reverb and automation that comes with that. The music I wrote in Logic, obviously. So awesome. So. So are there are there any stock plugins that you use inside of Logic or is it all stock plugins or do you have any favorites and go-tos? Yeah, I use um I use Logic's uh modular, you know, sort of synth plugin the ES2 a lot. Um mm-hmm. just cuz I know it really well. Um it has a a very particular sound, but I also I've been using it for many years and I know how I can dial in the sound I want pretty quickly with it. Mm-hmm. Uh I probably should learn some more synth plugins just so I <laughs> you know, don't, don't get too set in my ways. Um, but I've, and that's, I've, that's more for the music stuff. Yeah. Yeah. For the music yeah. stuff. Um, how I'm about the, to, any other things as far as reverb, um, other um, special effects? I mean, cause I know there's, there's what, like 30, 40, 50 stock plugins inside of logic. Yeah. Um, let me think space designer is incredible. It's a great impulse response reverb plugin, mm. um, that I was referring to. I used a, a different plugin. Uh, I used Waves IR1 for the reverb in this scene, but it could have just as easily been achieved with the stock Logic Space Designer plugin. Yeah, um, probably easier because they have a larger <laughs> native sample library. Um, any sound designer you talk to, many will say that Space Designer is like the best free stock plugin um, mm. of of anything. Um, so, so that's a big one, Space Designer. There aren't a lot of other stock logic plugins I use for sound design, um, in terms of compositing. Although I do really like just, you know, your basic chorus and phaser modulation stuff for light, you know, voice processing for robot voices or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, I, I think that's about it as far as stock plugins go for logic. Cool. So, so you wrote, so you wrote the music that we listened to earlier, uh, which a lot of people in the chat really like, they're actually curious if it's going to be available somewhere else later. Oh man, yeah. Mark and I have talked about this. We would really like to release a Bandcamp album of all the music from our shows. Yeah, um, dude. Uh, and it's it's something we want to do. Uh, there's a there's a few reasons we haven't done it yet. One is just time, because if I'm releasing music, I'm I am very very uh, you know skittish about making sure everything's mixed properly, and I wouldn't yeah. <laughs> want to release the music standalone unless I was absolutely sure that it was yeah. you know put together well. The other reason is I write most of the music for our shows, but we do have some songs that are um, done with outside collaborators, and I would want to make sure legally and mm. copyright-wise we were in the clear and that we had signed some kind of formal licensing or distribution agreement uh, just so everyone's happy money-wise. Yeah. But yeah, um, the song the song from uh, that transition scene is is basically you know me ripping off Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross at my finest, uh, you know, it's... I'm a big fan of their uh, scoring work, and uh, he's so. great. Yeah, I've been I've been wanting to get into more electronic music similar to that, and I, I think back. There's a couple people uh, that I really I, I, I want to rip off or emulate. <laughs> um, Trenton Reznor would be one of them. Uh, the guy who does Tobacco. Ooh, I'm not familiar with that. I'll have to check that out. Oh, oh man, it's like uh, I'll, maybe I'll include a link in the show. But anyways, so. Let's talk about how you achieved that effect. I mean, I, I can take a guess, but you made you you had the sound effects of uh, the footsteps on a ladder, I believe, or I believe it's a ladder. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, and so that's is that something you recorded yourself, or um, or is that something you got out of the sound library? Um, I used uh, several different libraries for that. Uh, I I took about 
I think I took from three or four different libraries a mixture of there is some simulated uh, ladder movement in there, like arms reaching, grabbing, uh, hands grabbing the rungs of the ladder. Um, and then there's also some pure metal footsteps in there, just yeah. like some hard clangs. I believe that uh, sequence of them going down the ladder, I think in the in the original way I was putting it together, there was maybe six or seven tracks, um, three of which were cloth movements and hand sort of body motions, and three of which were footsteps. And some were more foregrounded. When Jeremy's counting, you know, you hear his footsteps much more directly because he's mm-hmm. drawing attention to the fact that he's counting them. So his are the loudest and they're sort of foregrounded. The others are sort of panned off to the side and they're further away to evoke the sense of space and depth because presumably they're going down this sort of circular enclosure, you know, into a vault. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was a real pain to put together. <laughs> I can imagine, um, dude. I'm just sitting like, here like you recorded clothes rustling yeah. to make this realistic. And yeah, and one thing that's key to good footstep, at least in audio drama, I can't speak to um, film or you know or TV or video fully, but yeah. uh, with audio drama, I do think making footsteps convincing. Part of it is a mixture of the footsteps being good, but also having that cloth movement, all that sort of fabric rustling. Um, Subtle details, man. Yeah. Little details. Wait, I had, I had, oh man, I had a question and then I lost it. Oh, what was it? Oh, um, so obviously if, if with, with headphones, with soundscapes, you have left and right channels, obviously that, that you can do. What do you do? when you're trying to make something seem like it's coming from above or below, is there any way to achieve that effect? Um, so in episode two of the deep vault, there's a scene where two characters have crashed through the floor of the room they're in and, uh, they're down there for a bit. And then you hear them sort of calling up through the crash hole to the other characters who are above them. I think, I think it worked pretty well. Um, I do think the sort of sequence of the narrative and that you hear them crash through the floor first and the space change around them accordingly. And then you hear the other characters later helps to establish that. Mm -hmm. Um, And really it's just a matter of having more reverb or, and or more delay on the voices that are further away than the voices that are close to you. I, I'm still sort of figuring out what my philosophy on panning things is for the Mm -hmm. deep vault because it's an ensemble cast with four actors talking at once. I have them all sort of panned around the clock. Um, some are hard left, some are hard right, some are closer to the center. Um, usually if characters are interrogating or like trying to get info from one character or a recording, I'll have the recording or character they're talking to in the center as a, to give the sense that, you know, they're sort of gathered around this new source of information they're trying to learn. Interesting. Um, Making things sound far away or above or below, I, you know, for me, it's just a matter of adding more reverb on the things that are further away and hoping mm-hmm. the sense of space translates. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think yeah. it does most of the time, but it's it's one of those things that I'm curious about. Maybe now I'm thinking about the future with VR and how they're going to handle the different, you know, because obviously you can, in, I don't know, have you got to try VR yet, the headsets? No, um, but I have some friends who've, told me i need to and i, I really uh, want to i i know i have some friends who say google cardboard alone is just incredible and uh, yeah, i really would like to check it out because i am curious one just about you know how that technology is what it's like but also what it's going to mean for sound um what sound design for vr is going to be like and how it's going to differ from the old guard but also use some of the same tried and true techniques to achieve a realistic experience uh, yeah, well, I have to say, I use the equivalent of Google Cardboard, not even one of the great ones, and it just blew my mind. It was it was just super simple. I don't even think there was sound. It was just visually, it was like you, you try this thing, and then you're just like, how is this possible? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, a, it's amazing, and it's going to be a game changer. So, uh, so, yeah, maybe we'll both have future careers in sound design for VR applications. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I'm also, I'm just trying to stay ahead of what's new with sound design. So, you know, just whenever, because I'm afraid of being replaced by robots in general, it's, <laughs> it's something I think about uh, at least once a day, semi-seriously. Like, you right, and is me this, both, yeah. Am I doing something that will still be done by a human in 20 years? And 
you know, I, I feel okay about it most of the time, but you never know. <laughs> you, well, you know, I, I always, I like to think that you are because you're, you're, you're being creative and you're, you're doing things that I feel like take a human, but have you heard about the, the, the AI, the artificial intelligence robot that wrote and directed a movie or something? I, I haven't heard like, about that one. No. Uh, it's people are like, this is a, this is a good movie for an AI robot. And I'm just like, mm, okay, well, we'll see, but who knows? It's all kind of up in the air. Uh, maybe we could have you back and do a show about that in, in a year or two, see yeah. how things are going. <laughs> yeah. Mark uh, and I are okay. both big AI robot, uh, fans. So, uh, that's, a- that's awesome. We'll have to do that. I'll start a new podcast. So, so you did this effect of, you had this music playing over these footsteps and the sound of the footsteps kind of blended into the beat of the music. And that was, was that just a matter of, did you write the beat first? Were you listening to the the footsteps and the pattern of that? Or did you go back and kind of match those things up later? Um, they were matched up later, but um, my choice of percussion samples definitely made them uh, more easily blendable. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all f- with the exception of the kick drum, which is more of sort of a classic, you know, electronic, just bass pulse kick drum. Yeah. Uh, everything in there is found percussion. So it's just everyday objects being tapped on things like chairs or bags or, you know, plastic silverware. It's all lo-fi. I really like working with lo-fi kind of found percussion samples. Yeah. You'll like tobacco then. You know, oh, I'll, excellent. I'll send you, I'll send you a link. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, please do. Um, I love that stuff. So I think the fact that the percussion track in the song is very, uh, you know, kind of, it's not lo-fi, but you can tell it's not, you know, it's not like a real snare drum recorded in the studio either. Uh, yeah. I think that helps serve as some connective tissue between the footsteps and their percussiveness and the song's percussion. And it's, you know, it, driving the melody forward. And, uh, and as a more general note, I think like the hardest part of any like, like narrative creative medium, I think is connective tissue and like the transition between one part and another, or the thing that glues two things that really work on their well on their own well together. Yeah. So, um, sonically I, that could be maybe a good example of how, you know, choosing the right percussion sample makes this good in the context of being a score rather than a standalone song. You know, perhaps if this was just a song that was released on an EP and not meant to score anything, it might sound better with a non-found percussion or some other type of sound. So uh, that's that's just kind of a thought, you know, an idea. I know, it's a good point. There's there's if nothing else today, I I've learned that there you have to think about so many little things when doing this kind of work. Absolutely. Man. Amazing, amazing. Okay, so thank you for that explanation. Let's uh let's jump into maybe some mistakes or some some hard times that you came across while you when you started doing Archive 81 and the Deep Vault. What are what are the some of the things that you struggled with? Um oh man, let me think. So one thing about recording in a bedroom is the bedroom we recorded in sounds really good as far as bedrooms go. Um <laughs> we went and yeah. tested it out with lots of different mics beforehand. Uh, our friend whose bedroom it was says, you guys can use it. I'm, I'm totally into people taking over my house for weird art projects. This is perfect. <laughs> um, and we had only ever tested the sound of the bedroom at night when everyone else in the house was really quiet. Uh, oh. when, we, when it came to production time, we were recording during um, the, the three like coldest and most blizzardy weeks of January when everyone... <laughs> You know, every person who could was holed up in their apartment in New York City. And yeah. above my friend's bedroom is a family that has five teenagers, I think. Uh, so Dang. between every take and sometimes to pause, we would have to we would have to pause all the time because there were just so many footsteps. Um, there was running water. Uh, there were just cooking sounds. <laughs> all of these environmental factors we didn't plan for. And I realized that even though acoustically the, the the room sounds very good. Um, there's no isolation from what's above or outside. So that was definitely uh, an error um, I sort of made in trying to plan the the space. And I, for the next time, you know, we shelled out for a real studio just because it, as, as cool as it is to record in a good sounding bedroom for free, it's sometimes worth that money when you don't have to stop every take for outside noise or you don't have to, you know, when you're pausing takes like that because of 
noise coming from upstairs or outside. You're losing the kind of groove you have with the actors. Uh, you're, mm-hmm. you might, actors might move around or wait if it takes like 10 minutes between a scene and then you might have to reset levels that makes it harder to set levels in post and mix. Um, yeah. so that was a real learning experience, I would say, uh, and just in terms of, you know, make, make sure you really understand all the, all the things that are happening in your environment before you choose a space to record in, uh, for a project like this. That's really that's really fantastic advice. I'll just jump in real sure. quick. Um, that applies to just regular podcasting too. Somebody asked me in our community the other day, how do I soundproof my room? And I said, okay, hang on. You're actually asking two different questions. One is how do I make the sound of my room less echoey or less noisy? Because you got things like computers that make noise, air conditioners that make noise, refrigerators, uh, the sound of your voice bouncing off of walls and coming back into your microphone. That's what causes the echo and the reverb. Uh, But then you've also got external things. So that's all the sounds that are outside of your room. Like in my case, I have three windows that are kind of directly in front of me and one to my right. And these, it's an old house. So these windows are not soundproof. If someone was running a lawnmower outside of my window, uh, mowing my backyard, you would hear it. Everyone would hear it. So, so you have to be aware of both. That's what's, I think that's, what's called soundproofing, maybe sound isolation and then sound treatment is so soundproofing is making sure noises from the outside don't come in. Sound treatment is making sure that there aren't noises inside your room uh, <laughs> causing you problems in your audio. So any other any other mistakes or things that that really stood out? Oh man, while, so many. This whole process. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How long do you have, right? Jeez, <laughs> um, oh, I could. I, it's just a matter of like, what's what's a useful mistake to talk about, and what's one I right, just right. perpetually torture myself for at night. Um, <laughs> casting archive eighty one. I didn't really have a system for, we didn't really have a system for how we went about casting it. We Mm -hmm. sort of just put the character notices out on Craigslist and on listservs one at a time and kind of Mm -hmm. auditioned and chose people piecemeal. Um, It worked out for the most part, although there were some characters where we were in a real bind because we didn't have like enough people in time and we just sort of had to choose the best option and I would have liked to have had more options. So Casting, I, I pretty much did all the casting for, you know, the first season and I didn't go about it systematically. So for the second season, I wanted to, or rather for the Deep Vault, I wanted to be sure I went about it uh, more systematically. So what I did was I sort of planned this one whole weekend where Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I was just auditioning all these people. I planned in advance everyone who's coming through and uh, who the character they're auditioning for uh, chose, you know, discrete time slots in the day, you know, tried to do it all at once. Mm-hmm. And and that was good, but the problem was I I packed, it was organized, but I I packed too many people into one weekend. So by Sunday afternoon, I was too just much. fried. <laughs> and I'm I'm not really, um, I'm I'm pretty introverted by nature. Um, yeah. I you know I chose, I think I chose my line of work in terms of audio and technical, uh, the technical side of audio production because a lot of times you're just it's just you and the machine and you know, you do need soft skills and to be able to, you know, talk to people and be professional, but you also Mm -hmm. spend a lot of time alone by yourself, which I'm fine with. And I'm, I definitely love socializing and talking to people like this interview is awesome. Um, I'm having a lot of fun with it, but I, you'll be happy to go back to your, to your logic. Yeah. I'll I'll be happy to go back to my little audio hole. (laughs) (laughs) Trust Um, me. I know. (laughs) So at the end of that Sunday, after, you know, two eight hour days of just talking and reading for all these characters and auditioning. And it wasn't, it wasn't just like I was talking and interviewing. I was also like in character and acting with these people. Uh, And I was, I was totally like just defeated and drained. Like, Oh my God, I can't do this. So, (laughs) so I think what I've learned from both of those experiences, like, all right, I'm going to be more systematic about it, but I'm also going to like plan it out in advance and like spread this over a few weekends as opposed to trying to do it all in one weekend. Um, I, I like that. So, yeah, that's that's another major lesson. That's no, that's really huge, and I'll, and I'll touch on that from my experience. So I'm I'm kind of a productivity nerd as far as planning out days and and making sure that I always have stuff to do because there's a lot of things I want to accomplish. Um, but at the same time, it, when you first get into that, if you haven't done it for a while, you tend to overestimate what you can accomplish. Uh, so you think you, you kind of treat yourself as like I could I could do meaningful work for twelve hours for fourteen hours. And you just don't realize that you try to take on too much. You say yes to too many things. You plan to do too many things. And halfway through, you're just, 
you've given it all you've had for six hours and you're just worn out and you're just tired. And then you, you, you feel guilty because you didn't do all the things that you said you were going to do. Yep. Yep. So that pacing yourself and, 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 but it's good to plan. It's good to, to try that stuff because, because then, you know, next time, you know, not to plan 12 hours of work for both Saturday and Sunday on top of your, you know, but maybe you can do that, but you don't know until you try. You don't know until you record. So start by planning, try it, make notes about how it goes, and then you'll have a better a better understanding of yourself and your energy levels for the next time. Definitely. And that just speaks to the more general philosophy, which I'm sure you know is just just doing it will is is the only way to really know like what your own patterns are, um, mm. what works for you, what doesn't work for you, and like yeah, just like being being open to like there being some trial and error in like how yep. your own personal workflow is, you know? Yeah. I feel like some people it's it's easy to look look up to certain human accomplishments and think like, oh man, this this great musician practiced for twelve hours a day. I must have to do that to like be the, you know, Rachmaninoff of podcasting, but not <laughs> at the same time, there are a lot of successful and accomplished people who have a more like human and like normal, you know, working hour regimen or, or take breaks Mm -hmm. or, you know, not Trent Reznor is one of those people, you know, I mean, it's obvious from his output that he's probably someone who just never stops working and that really works for him. But, uh, some people need, need more, you know, time to unwind and not get burnt out on things. So. Absolutely. So we're, we're, we're pushing an hour here, so we'll have to wrap up soon. Uh, what kind of advice or, or tips would you give to someone who's interested in doing something like Archive 81 or default, you know, found sound or radio drama podcast? Cause I've noticed, I've noticed in the last year or two, they're, they're really kind of skyrocketing in terms of popularity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's a lot of people who have maybe been turning the idea over in their mind of uh, maybe I could do this kind of thing. Well, uh, what would you, what would you, say to those people um so the first thing is you know writing and acting has to be really good uh you Mm. you know make sure from the source that the writing is good uh have people you can really trust for feedback and critique who you can run things by um because if the source material and story doesn't work then you know everything that follows in the signal chain isn't going to work either um yeah that's one thing I would say, like, if you've never done a podcast before, um, be be prepared for just a lot of many hours of sedentary work because, like, I, it's just <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I'm like, comf- like I like we've established, and I, I'm sorry if I've like repeated the subject too much, but doing this no, kind no, of work takes great. a lot of time, and a lot of time you just have to spend alone in front of a computer. And I've I lost count of the number of times this summer where my friends said like. Hey, we're going to the beach. Want to come? Or hey, I got this housewarming party. Want to come? And all these things uh-huh. I wanted to do, and I just had to blow them off because I was editing or I was working on revising scripts with Mark. Um, so be prepared for that, and also make sure you're okay with that. Like, yeah, if you yeah. if you need like a lot of time outside of the house and and like really need a social life, then maybe maybe like podcasting isn't right for you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or it's possible, or like, or like this, like my particular domain of podcasting isn't right for you. Like, if if you want to be yeah, an interviewer yeah. or host, that's a, that's a very different thing. Um, that is a lot easier. But but yeah, like that's that's one thing to take into account. I don't really like to be preachy or like uh, evangelical with exercise because uh, you know, ever people like what they like and they don't like what they like. But I I do think it's a good thing to have as part of your regimen if you're doing some kind of cre- sedentary creative work, uh, just because yes. it makes yeah it makes the mind work better and it in general just puts me more at ease uh, mm-hmm. and more focused for things. I'm with you on that. So we, we can, we can recommend it Two two out of two uh, <laughs> podcasters recommend exercise and good sleep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just go out there and, and do it and, you know, you know, work hard and tell a story you want to tell. Don't, don't make anything that you're trying to make just because it'll you think it'll sell or get an audience. Mark and mm. I made Archive 81 because we thought it was a really cool idea. And obviously, now that we have somewhat of a following, you know, we want what we make to be in conversation with our audience. Um, but like, don't, you know, make something because you want to make it, not because you think it'll get a lot of downloads or get you sponsored. Um, yeah. 
that's fantastic advice, man. Thanks. I, I try. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, and the other thing too is like, I, I still feel like I'm learning a lot with yeah, regards yeah. to all this stuff and still figuring it out. So just keep an open mind and, you know, stay open to like learning new things as you go along. I still study sound design with a mentor. Uh, cause I feel like there's always like new levels I can push myself towards and I don't want to get too comfortable. Um, so yeah. Fantastic advice, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I have I, I don't. I hate to put you on the spot, but I'm kind of curious. Are, do you know of any books, websites, or online courses that would be uh, useful for either someone who's a total beginner or maybe someone like me who is relatively familiar with recording, producing, and mixing music and podcasts, but has never really gotten into sound design? Uh, and it's okay if you don't, but I just wanted to throw that out there, just off the top of your head. Anything that's been really, really helpful helpful for you? Um, let me think. So. Transom.org is a fantastic resource. Um, although a lot of it is geared towards people who are beginners in radio and podcasting, I still find articles on there that I learn new things from. And I, I think it has a good sort of intro sort of overview to things like sound design. My personal advice, I don't, and I can't, I'm sorry, I can't name anything specific. No, it's fine. Something I've been doing for a few years now is whenever I want to learn more about a subject, I find someone who I like and relate to who's pretty established in that field. And I just reach out to them asking for like some one-on-one mentoring lessons. And I'm, yeah. And I think that's something I think is worth paying for, you know, just like, definitely, definitely, you know, 50, most people are like, Oh yeah, 50 bucks in a few hours, we can just sit down and talk about this. And that's, what's been the most helpful to me, no matter what artistic discipline I'm in. I've always, I've always found it really helpful to just find people who are established and reach out to them and ask for some really direct one-on-one advice. So I would advise you if there's like a sound designer, composer, or a radio producer who you admire, see if if that's an option. Um, I don't think Ira Glass is capable of giving private <laughs> lessons with as busy as he is, but I'm sure there yeah, are yeah. people out there who are really good at what they do who are. So yeah, and and I think it's so there's there's people at all different levels on this journey, right? We're talking about audio specifically, but I think in any in any case. There are those super famous people that you've heard of, you know, Ira Glass. Uh, then there's there's people who are kind of in the middle who have more experience than you, but maybe aren't quite so famous yet. And and I think surrounding yourself with with people and friends who share your passion and who share your interests and are on your skill level is great. But then also reaching out and offering to pay for some consulting to someone who's on that mid-level is really, really great because chances are they, I mean, they, they like talking about that stuff, but it is good to, to pay people for their time to compensate them because yeah. that'll make sure that they're invested and they're not, they're not feeling like you're, you're just taking advantage of their time and, and mining them for their knowledge. Um, and it's, you know, and audio engineers gotta, gotta make money to, to buy microphones. So yep. Yep. <laughs> So many microphones. Um, oh gosh, dude, so much gear. Well, there's man, there's so many other things I we could have unpacked and, and gotten into. So I, maybe I'll have you back in the future. But uh, as far as at this point, where where do you want to direct people to go to find you online to get in touch with you if, if they have questions or if they want to pay you some consulting? Yeah, uh, and I'm happy to offer pro bono pro bono consulting to anyone. Um, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Um, easiest way to find me is on Twitter. My handle is stereophobe. That's stereo, like a uh, stereo, and then phobe, like a phobia with an E at the end. I like it. Um, and then a good one. my website is stereophobe.be, so the word stereophobe, just domainified. And my email is Daniel Houston, like Texas, Powell, P-O-W-E-L-L, at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out to me. You can also email deadsignalsradio at gmail.com if you have questions for Mark or I. Uh, we're always happy to advise. So, Yeah. Fantastic. And I'll include links to Archive 81 and Deep Vault, uh, iTunes, and the websites in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at thepodcastdude.com slash 65. Fantastic show, man. Uh, Again, I really, really appreciate it. If if the listener wants to find me, if they want to get in touch with me, you can head to thepodcastdude.com. I've got all the episodes there. I've got a contact form. You can get in touch with me. I'm also on Twitter at the podcast dude and uh, more shows coming in the future. So subscribe to the show, subscribe to um, my newsletter. I send out recaps and, and valuable takeaways from every single episode, every single week. And also I've got, uh, speaking of learning stuff, I've got a couple courses coming out about first podcasting, just how to make an amazing podcast. 
uh, that'll save you a bunch of time. But also I'm doing a course about editing and producing podcasts inside of Logic. And then also one about uh, doing podcasting inside of GarageBand. So I'm really excited to, to share these and get these out there because I've gotten tons of emails over the years and I've answered uh, all of them. <laughs> and that just doesn't scale very well. So I, I knew that I needed to, to put everything I know into a course that people can buy and, and learn on their own time. So I'm really excited about that. So that's coming soon. You can uh, sign up for my email newsletter to get to hear about that first. And uh, if you enjoyed this show, if you enjoyed the other shows, you want to get around some people that are also passionate about audio and creating and writing and, and growing an audience, I highly check, recommend checking out seanwest.com. Uh, we've got a, a membership option there that is probably the most amazing thing that I've ever been a part of. So definitely recommend that. And I think that'll do it for the show this week. Uh, I got to review and see if we got any questions. But um, Dan, thanks so much for coming on, man. This has been amazing. Yeah, Aaron, thank you. This is this is a real pleasure and a, a great way to start the day. All right, so now I'm gonna have to now I'm gonna have to find something cool to talk about next week too. Hmm. There's, there's always things to talk about in oh, music. Yeah. Okay, so quick outro, and then we'll, we'll get into an after show. Maybe, uh, maybe find a couple of questions to answer and or just talk about whatever we feel like. Excellent. Oh, you know what? I thought of one. Um, listener Diana, she's she's about to start a podcast, but she's going to be traveling and stuff. So I, I wanted to ask you, There are I know there are times where you take microphones out into the real world to do field recordings and stuff. Yeah. Uh, what, what kind of setup do you use in that situation? Is it the same mics, uh, portable recording device? Um, it depends on uh, what kind of field recording I'm doing. If I'm trying to record some high quality ambient natural sounds, uh, or city sounds, I'll use my uh, MKH-8040 and uh, MKH-30 rig uh, mm-hmm. with a Rycote windshield, and that's some pretty high-end stuff. Um, yeah. If I'm just doing interviews, a real basic uh, dynamic microphone like a Sennheiser MD-421 or a Shure SM-58 um, yeah. will work just as well, um, in some cases better, because dynamic microphones, as, as we touched on earlier, are really good at, you know, uh, it's good keeping at out the background isolation. noise. Yeah, Another yeah. good option to consider would be the uh, Sennheiser ME66, which is a great short shotgun microphone, which is good for both ambient uh, sound and for sort of you know interview recording in a live setting. Uh, it's pretty mm. affordably priced. It's in the two to three hundred dollar range. And uh, mm. as I will continue to preach, you can find it on eBay or Craigslist for much cheaper if you're patient. Yes. Um, yes. Maybe even GuitarCenter.com. Oh yeah. Uh, reverb, some reverb.com has some great deals. Yeah, they too. really do. I've seen some like awesomely priced things pop up on there. I, I actually, I got some, some studio monitors from there the other day. Okay. Uh, so, um, what, uh, what device do you record into? Uh, so I use a sound devices 702T, which is a pretty high end two track field recorder. I've never even heard of that. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's used, uh, it's sort of optimized for like a small setup over the shoulder documentary film production sound. Um, yeah. It's built like a tank. The preamps mm. are amazing. The limiters are really amazing. You can, you know, have some loud signals come through unexpectedly and it'll catch them pretty transparently. Um, wow. I think new, it retails for about 2700 So it's, it's not <laughs> like, a, you know, I, I just got it. I had saved up for a really long time because I wanted one, and I found a very yeah. good deal. Uh, I got it for only like thirteen hundred. Um, just waiting to find one used, but uh, it'll. You know, I knew it would last me a lifetime, so that was sort of the goal. Yeah, yeah. For for more like accessibly priced things, I would say the Zoom H5 or H6 is just a fantastic, you know, piece of equipment to record with. Uh, the preamps yeah. sound really good. 
It's good for, you know, multi-channel, the Zoom H6. You can expand up to six channels if you need that. The built-in onboard XY mics sound great. And you can find that, you know, new for like around 300 or used for way less than that. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah, I, I you know, it's, it's a solid improvement over the H4n in many ways. Uh, there's less handling noise. It's less noisy. And I would say, you know, the majority of anyone looking into working with podcasting would, would do great with one of those. Yeah, I have. I actually have one of the. Uh, it's not the newest H4n, but the previous one, and it's it's usable, but um, definitely not amazing. So I, I'm I probably need to upgrade to the H6 at some point. So and as far as just general advice for her, because I know she's going to be out and about and recording, and I think this is a situation a lot of people will get in. When you're recording, you have to think about the noise that's in the room, and then also the ambient noise. So where you are, if there's going to be the possibility of a lot of noise going on in the background. Uh, Coffee, <laughs> coffee shops and crowded restaurants are just not going to be good for getting clean audio. Um, <laughs> yep. And then, and then just setting levels correctly. So you want to make sure that your 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 signal coming into the microphone uh, doesn't hit that zero. You want to kind of try to keep the loudest points. Uh, I, I say negative twelve dB. So that's you'll see a little negative twelve. Uh, what's your thought on that? What do you aim for? Yeah, I aim for like between negative 12 and like negative six at absolute highest. Um, yeah. And that's for both studio and in the field. Um, when recording, it's it's interesting because I, I always stuck by that as kind of like, you know, a universal truth of audio. But when I was stu- doing some sound design training this summer uh, with with the person I was mentoring under for sound effects recording, he was advising me to capture things at as high of a signal level as possible without clipping. Um, just because of having like being able to focus and isolate the sound source that way really is much more beneficial when you're trying to make like a sound effect, um, Mm. a non dialogue level with, you know, something that's not dialogue. Um, gotcha. And did you have limiters on when you were recording for that? Yeah. Um, I, I usually keep the limiters on, but, um, I, I try not to hit them. Um, yeah. I record my rooftop a lot just cause it's, it's close by and you know, it's, it's every, once in a while I'll get up at like 6am and record the morning rush as it starts to unfold. And, uh, I'll usually need the limiters to catch, uh, a, you know, a, a truck horn or a, a plane that flies overhead because it is New York city after all. Um, <laughs> I would say if you're in a noisy environments, uh, that's another good case for using a dynamic microphone because it does isolate mm. the sound source pretty well. Uh, when I was in school, I did a, a student radio project for a sort of radio podcast production class where I was riding the campus buses that would, you know, take students between different parts of the campus. And I, I, uh, I was on these, I was on one of these buses like on a Friday night when it's just filled with drunk kids going from like one frat house to another. And yeah. you can imagine how quiet that was. Uh, yeah. But I was, I was using a dynamic mic and it worked pretty well when I was cutting the interviews together. Just having that sort of like loud, crazy ambience in the background. But if, if I held it yeah. you know, pretty close to the speaker, then I could still isolate them in a way that worked for the final product. So, yeah. So, so I think, and, and the other important thing is thinking about how the ambience and the background noise of the place that you're in can contribute to the story or to the feel of the, of the whole piece. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's great, you know, for all the woes that came from archive 81 being recorded in the bedroom with loud upstairs neighbors, I do think the fact that it felt like an apartment helped actors to get in the vibe. And I'm not sure how much of that translated sonically because it's hard for me to be objective about it at this point. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think having that atmosphere in the background worked for that particular piece. Um, in theory, I would like to do more location recording for audio dramas. Like I'd like to, if something takes place on a busy street corner, I'd like to ideally get out there with, you know, a more formal production sound rig and record it. Um, but it's just very, Mark and I work at a pretty, you know, intense pace and it's, it's not always easy to coordinate that. And many times mm-hmm. it just makes more sense to do things in the studio and create the atmosphere after the fact, but that doesn't mean yeah. you shouldn't. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think do what, do what your gut says and, and go instinctively and, and think about it and, and plan it. But yeah, Mark was saying last week that one of the hardest things for him is, is the times, the t- time constraints. 
And I definitely feel that too. I mean, my com- my podcast isn't anything complicated, but it still takes a few hours to produce. Totally. And when you have a full-time job and other projects and people you want to hang out with, it, it you really have to focus on what you want to say yes to and what you want to say no to. Absolutely. So, but uh, but good luck, Diana. And I, I hope it's. Uh, she said she got she got an H six, I believe, for two fifty nine. Oh, is fantastic! Awesome. And it came with all the extra accessories. Man, oh man, that's, that's a good deal. That's yeah, that's good, awesome. good job, Diana. <laughs> yep, getting that used gear. All used right. gear club. So, <laughs> used gear for the win. So again, man, thank you so much. Um, I'm hoping. Uh, I'm hoping that I'll. Uh, are you Are you still in New York right now? I am. Yeah, and I will be. I'm here gonna look you up. I don't think I'm leaving I, uh, anytime soon. Um, I, I'm going to hit you up whenever I'm visiting. Please uh, do. <laughs> we'll, we'll hang out and we'll play with some microphones and record some stuff. Yeah, I'd love to do that. That sounds like an <laughs> ideal hanging situation. Uh, yeah, just nerd out about reverbs inside of Logic. Yep. yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay, dude. Uh, and yeah, thank you to the listener. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. Again, I'll include the links in the show notes. And um, yeah, you can get in touch with Dan, ask him questions. I encourage you to. He's a, he's a cool guy. And same with me, uh, my website, thepodcastdude.com. And I hope you have an excellent rest of the day, and I will talk to you next week.